Can you hear me calling? I can't remember what's what yeah, saying. It might be, can you hear me running? Oh, S- yeah. Silent running brackets on dangerous ground. Oh, you know, <laughs> you've hit. It's like the way says it might be, and then produces the entire lyrics. <laughs> it, it, it might be that. I have no idea, really. Stay <laughs> up down tonight and turn into the night. Something like that, isn't it? it, it yeah, yeah, I had it on uh, the Rock City Nights compilation on, on cassette. Yeah, it's kind of a bit of an atmospheric kind oh, of... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Brooding. Yeah, I've not heard that for ages. Yeah. Can you hear me? Welcome to Hark, the 87th Precinct <laughs> podcast. Can you, you hear join me us in the running? midst of a Mike and the Mechanics... Um, well, I'd call it a sing-along, but it's, I think it's just Steve-O's... It's in his heart. It is, yeah. Um, to the heart of Paul Carrick. <laughs> Which you're borrowing for this, this week's I episode. I am, so I'm, I'm going to review this um, particular book from the op- uh, p- opinion of Paul Carrick. Excellent. Well, we'll try and keep got, that in mind. Got me beanie on. <laughs> nice. Right. Oh, there you go. That's one of the more unusual starts, but you know that's what happens. We are looking at Lady Killer by Ed McBain, not as I said on the last podcast, uh, Killer's Wedge, which is the next book in the series. I got excited because I really like Killer's Wedge, and it's uh, one that sticks out in my mind quite a lot. But I also like this book, and it's Lady Killer. So sorry for getting the order wrong, which I should not have done given the amount of time I've spent <laughs> organising the books. And also sorting out the website and, and blog and stuff. We think it may be because the Orion edition of the books has the order published wrong in them. But I've checked. And this is the right one. Lady Killer. Indeed it is. From 1958. So, I'll do a little bit of a 1958 extra detail. Because it's always nice to sort of put the context around these things. So, let's have a look at what do we think was uh, sort of number one in the charts in the UK and America. About 1958. <sighs> We're talking August 58, if that helps. I'll leave that to Morgan. I don't know, was was rock and roll still raining or was it starting to, the, the first wave starting to fade a little? I don't know. I think it probably was uh, fading a little by this point, given the things that are in the charts. Although I think it's a bit of a myth that it just went sort of crooners, rock and oh, roll. Absolutely, know, yeah. I think there's a lot more crossover with these things um, than people think. Oh, I don't know. Connie Francis. Uh, probably in there somewhere. <laughs> I haven't got all the information. In the UK, the the week that this... Well, certainly the book was registered. The number one tune was When by the Carlin Twins. Or Kaylin Twins. K-A-L-I-N. Nice. That, uh, that That's just one that's... Toll Tapper. If you've never heard it, it's one that just goes... Dum, bum, ba-da-da-da-dum, bum, bum, ba-da-da-da-dum, Like... Lots and lots uh, yeah. of songs at the time did. Standard four chord trick. Except yeah. that it's got the feature of they click their fingers really loudly all the way through it. Ooh. In America, however, the number one spot was held by Ricky Nelson with oh. Poor Little Fool. Oh, very good. And that was just ahead of Nel Blu Dipinto di Blu by Domenico Modugno. One I'm sure favorites. I pronounced that perfectly. <laughs> Perfect in that Italian pronunciation there. But it is better known as Volare, ah. which made more famous by Dean Martin. Dean Martin, naturally, yeah. Volare, oh, <laughs> etc. Movies-wise, um, Gigi won the Best Picture Oscar that year. But I think one of the standout films from America that year is The Fly. Ooh. The original version of The Fly. Vincent Price. However, in the UK, we have two very significant films... From 1958, ones that Frankenstein's monster nearly is Frankenstein. Stop saying Frankenstein, but follow <laughs> that train of thought. Um, Dracula. Dracula. Dracula, yes, the first of the Hammer horror Draculas is out in 1958. Because Fra- Frankenstein must be 59, 59 then, yeah, it's close. almost immediately. I think they were producing a couple a year at that point, mm. Hammer, for yeah. the, the, those series of things. But also, the first film in a very famous series of films was released that year. Start- Carry on. Yep. Carry on, Sergeant, is it? That's exactly it. Oh, very good. Featuring William Hartnell a few years, well, five years before he becomes Doctor Who Uh, in his role as the uh, cross-sergeant of the title. Does that feature Kenneth Connor before he did Inspector Morse? Kenneth Connor did Inspector Morse? Well, we were talking about that a few weeks ago, oh, how, we... how Kenneth Connor... Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes, we were, and, we were uh... discussing the, um, the 
who would you cast as uh, alternative? Bernard detective? Breslor as. Uh, um, I forgot about this. Bernard Bernard Breslor stars as Pyro. <laughs> We're off to a flame start this time, aren't we? I've totally forgotten we'd have this stupid You look at me so brankly. Kenneth Connor was... Well, you don't necessarily expect it. It doesn't come up on a day-to-day level. Yeah, Yeah. Kenneth Williams is Banachek. (laughs) Yeah, Jim Dale as Ironside. Oh God! You could just do this for yeah, hours. You could, yeah, yeah. Your own podcast series where you recast every famous detective as a member of the Carry On team. Yeah. Joan well. Sims as Miss Marple. That's actually probably quite a nice idea. Yeah, could um, work. Anyway, <laughs> yes, Carry On Sergeant, first of the Carry yeah. On films, which still it's not a bad film actually. It's more like an Ealing comedy than it is a sort of farce. Uh, rather less saucy than some of the uh, later instalments, yeah. as I recall. The early ones are all right, aren't they? They yeah. just get progressively worse, to be is honest. Is Bob Monkhouse in that one? I think he might be. Mm. Anyway, politically speaking, Eisenhower was president. Macmillan was prime minister. Steve-O might know this. I'm not suggesting Morgan won't, but I know Steve-O but does love his infrastructure. <laughs> what was the big infrastructure thing that Macmillan was involved in in 1958? 1958, uh, the first motorway in England, the Preston Bypass. Absolutely, <laughs> That's- yes. That Amazing. was uh, that's what happened in the month that this book was published. The there's first a, stretch of motorway was opened in. New there's UK. a big plaque in the roundabout by the Tickle Trout at, uh, <laughs> near Salmsbury, Blackburn. That's the level of detail that people come to this podcast for. There'll be people. Did in, I say Tickle in, Trout, not Pickle Trout? Yeah, Tickle, pickle Trout. Well, the M1 was the first motorway, but the first bit of motorway was the Preston Bypass. So eight, eight or nine miles of it up mm. in, in Preston. So. There we go. That's the context you need when you're reading this book. You need to know that uh, Valare was in the charts, Carry On Sergeant had uh, come out, and that there was eight miles of motorway in the UK. And Kenneth Connor was <laughs> Inspector Morse. <laughs> Kenneth Connor was rehearsing to be Inspector Morse. Lewis! Nicky <laughs> Ticker. Oh. <laughs> Let's not get into the hello, hello impression. Um, we haven't watched the 87 Precinct TV adaptation of this, although there was one. This is one of the ones that has been adapted for it. All right. We'll watch it at some point yeah. for our entertainment purposes. It's, mm-hmm. as I recall, not bad. But let's get straight into the book now. Okay. This book opens with a fantastic first <laughs> line. It's in italics. It stands out on its own. It's got four question marks behind it. Mm. And it was... Were you a crank this week? <laughs> That's a good question to open a book with. That certainly I is. Think. Was, were either of you cranks this week? I'm generally a crank at least once or twice a I'm day. I'm sure I, I was. Yeah. I think yeah. I've probably been quite cranky. Possibly even. It's a fairly cranky first page, isn't it? it really. It, 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 uh... As these things go, yeah, it doesn't really do what you expect the opening of an 87th precinct novel to do. Um, yeah, it's quite cranky. But it's uh, setting you up for what's to uh, to unfold. Definitely. Over the next chapters. Basically, he's talking about the notion of a crank, the people who would just waste the police's time, basically. And he suggests that people who ring up and say that there are suspected communists, kidnappers, murderers, abortionists, forgers and high-class whorehouses. People who complain about television comedians, mice, landlords, loud phonographs, strange ticking sounds in the walls and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And he does ask again, were you a crank this week? And then he states that it was Wednesday, 24th of July. I think it's... He's writing this, it's published in 1958. If we were going to be particularly, what's the word, accurate about this, Wednesday, 24th of July would set it in 1957. Should mm-hmm. you care to know, I did check. <laughs> that was a Wednesday. <laughs> and what I like about this book, before we even get into the plot of it, is it takes place on that one day. Mm. And not even... In fact, the entire length of the day, basically, a little over 12 hours, yeah. basically takes place, this story. It sets up a countdown early on, and then the entire book is just counting down those minutes, isn't it? Which is Yeah, it's very, it... very specific as well with yeah. it. I, I noted them down. Which is exactly the same as the subsequent book as well, actually, because that's all set on one day as well. Yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah, the, so the, that, yeah, that's quite interesting. He... Well, it's sort of... Turns turning the magnifying glass onto the precinct even more, I think, yeah. isn't it? Rather mm. than sort of big picture actually. police work taking, which is graft and takes place over a number of days or weeks or whatever. This is literally 
if you have an extreme situation, mm. the urgency and how the machinery goes into operation yeah. for to try and solve the crime or yeah. prevent the crime. It's interesting, really, at this stage of the series where a lot of writers would probably have just gone, oh, well, this exact formula works. Let's just churn out um, more variations on exactly the same formula. He's very much actually playing with it, and every novel at this stage takes quite a different shape, doesn't it? Like, So there'll be some that really expand out and explore lots of different characters over a long period of time, and some that really focus in... And, uh, it, yeah, it's, so it makes it really kind of uh, pretty engrossing because every time you, you get something totally different. Yeah, absolutely. And so you can't, by this point, you can't really take it for granted. He's set up enough things that you know you want to come back and read the next mm. one. But like you say, as, as he moves along with the series, he's actually bringing in new elements to it. And so we have this little bottle episode, as it mm. were. It's a little self-contained thing. But whilst this is all in one day, it's all throughout the city, though, isn't mm. it? It's absolutely all the four corners. Yeah, it covers the whole city, but always with this ever-present clock just ticking yeah. down towards this inevitable conclusion, Whereas, whatever that may be. In comparison to the next book, all in the same period of time, but all in one location. Yeah, yeah so, so it's even finer, so, yeah, finer it's, in the yeah, zoom. Yeah, getting closer. proper kind of chamber piece, but mm. beautifully uh, done, as we will see. Yes, as we will see before too long. It does, this first chapter has great lines in it, such as, surlily, Dave Murchison tugged at his underwear. Mm. <laughs> I like that because I like the word surlily, because I would never have thought that that was actually mm. a word. I would have thought you'd have had to say, Dave Murchison tugged at his underwear in a surly manner. Yeah, but no. And it's, I think that might have been the first time I've ever said the word surlily out loud. Mm. And it feels uh, very strange coming off the It has a, a pleasant ring to it, though. It does, it, it does. works for me. Yes, especially in the context of a desk sergeant with yeah. who's too hot in his underwear. Indeed. <laughs> and yeah, on the next page, he tugs at his undershorts sourly. <laughs> There's many ways you can uh, tug at your undershorts. Are we uh, divulging what the um, what the urgency is in the? Well, I don't, don't think that would be since it, it basically tells you on the, the front cover of my edition. I think we can probably divulge that. Well, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, it's a, a note that's received, handed to the desk sergeant by a um, small child. Yeah, and that, it closes uh, the first chapter, doesn't it? It does indeed, with a um, almost a photo stat. Um, I will kill the lady tonight at eight. What can you do about it? Question mark. Uh, and I love the way that ends. So the chapter literally ends with that image of the note that's been handed in. So this kid's passed a note into the desk sergeant and buggered off straight away. <laughs> so that's kind of following on from the, are oh, you a crank? Yeah. Um, and then there's some debate about whether this person's a crank. They're not really sure, yeah. but they won't take the risk. Yeah, and so then the rest of the novel plays out of them assuming that there is it's genuine yeah. and we trying see to track about the down character. the sender of the note. Yeah, we see something about the character of uh, uh, Lieutenant Burns in that he can't take the risk. Hmm. You know, and they, they're all sorts... So, like you say, the second chapter is literally them sitting around deciding what to do. And in the timeline, that takes them an hour and a quarter. Hmm. So that's an hour and a quarter they've lost from 7.45 in the morning when this story starts, when the letter is handed in. And... Eight o'clock being their deadline, as the note says. So they lose an hour and a quarter deciding what to do. And it's a good... Uh, I think more so than some of the recent um, books that we've read have definitely centred more on one, maybe two detectives. This one's mm. a proper team job. Yeah, real ensemble piece, uh, isn't it? So I think... Uh, well, Hawes does most of the running around. He, yes, he but does, you, actually, I but, think you so. get most of the other ones in there for... Yeah, you do get a good, good feel for the squad, don't you? Which is, is great. And he meets Christine Maxwell, doesn't he, in this, which I am sure... I'm sure the future will... Uh, yeah, I think she features again. Although not in the next book, funnily enough. No, no. But like we say, that's another small small universe Indeed. one. Anyway, what I would like to say about Chapter 2, before we get any further mm. into the actual book, is this is my true crime moment, OK? So Ooh. what I'm doing here is I'm channeling another podcast. There's a fantastic podcast called Wine and Crime, which three folks in America do, and it's a true crime podcast where they, as we drink beer and, and read Ed McBain, they talk about true crime stories and drink wine, hence the name Wine and Crime. Sounds like a tremendous idea. Yes, the, you know, we don't really talk about our beer, but um, 
they definitely talk about the wine. So I made a point. I knew I needed to do some true crime research because mm. of this story. So I got myself a bottle of wine. So this is my wine and crime tribute <laughs> moment here. In that I drank, not all in one go, it must be said, although I normally would, a bottle of Prestige de Calvé, Côte de Rhone, 2016, red wine. And I don't normally go for French red wine. Mm. I normally drink Spanish wine, if I have wine at all, which I haven't been having much of recently. But I bought it for the very complicated and uh, posh reason of it had a funny-shaped bottle. Well, that's... It's not quite round. Connoisseurs that we are, that's a very valid reason. Well, you know, there's at least me and you here, Morgan, who at some point in our post-student days, the wine that we drank was the one that basically had the smallest label and just said the word wine on it and cost the least money. How big's the bump in the bottom? It's it's fairly shallow, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's a funny funny shaped bottle, but it was very nice, actually. It was a very nice bottle of wine, and um, it says things in French on the back, so you know it's all right. Indeed, yeah. Nice, nice young, fruity French red. Yeah, it was. It was... (laughs) Definitely different to a. Not to a, like any what talk about then. Yeah, wine, wine, wine. So I did drink wine. I felt because I was doing some research into true crime, which we don't really look at. I'm a big fan of not true crime. <laughs> yeah. um, but in in chapter two, Corella mentions. I will get the wording right for you here before Oof. I say it. A revelation. This. They're talking about why this person's handed in the note, and they someone says perhaps he wants to get caught. Hmm. In fact, it's Hawes says it. Like this Hiram's kid in Chicago a few years back. Sure, the lipstick on the mirror, catch me before I kill again, Corella says. So, he refer to the lipstick killer, which is the name given to the case of William Hiram's, who was arrested in 1946 for the crime of killing three people, two women and a little girl. Josephine Ross, Francis Brown and Suzanne Degnan. This is in Chicago, as we suggest. So the first victim, Josephine Ross, was stabbed. The second, Francis Brown, was knifed in the neck and shot in the head. And the little girl, this is a horrible story, was snatched from a house. They later found her head in a storm sewer and the rest of her body had been dissected and distributed around the place. So horrible, horrible thing. But during the second killing, the reason that this became really popular with the press was there was a message left in in the victim's apartment on the wall written in lipstick that said... For heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. Mm. And this is clearly where some of the psychological backstory for mm. inspiration for this lady killer Indeed, book yeah. has come from. Maybe one day Wine and Crime will do this as a, a subject because there's so much information here. Basically, the police questioned so many people, hundreds and hundreds of people, and kept to keep letting them go. Hmm. They started thinking that the killer was a woman in one at one point. They thought that the little girl being snatched was to do with the Office of Price Administration meatpackers strike. All sorts of Obvious weird things like that. To draw, really, yeah. uh, later on, they arrested this guy, uh, William Hirons, who was only 17. He was arrested for attempted burglary elsewhere. And now, you shouldn't find the real world quite this funny, especially given the horrible murders involved in this know. story. But the way they caught him was... he the janitor of the place he tried to rob uh, chased him out and the police were there. And he was rendered unconscious by an off-duty policeman who dropped three clay flower pots on his head from the top of the <laughs> stairs. Which is just like it would, like something out of, I don't know... Carry on, Sergeant. Carry on, yeah, or, or carry on, Constable, from a few years later. Indeed, yeah. Literally, three clay flower pots, like in a cartoon. So how did they link him to the murders? Oh, well, via a series of very circumstantial evidence and also his confession. Some Roger Haviland-style beating the snot out of him back at the squad room? Well, yes, quite likely. He was questioned for six days. He was beaten. He was given sodium pentothal without a warrant. So do they think it's an unreliable conviction then? Yeah, well, basically when he was under the truth serum, he claimed to have a second personality called George who committed murders, but it's likely by that point he would have said anything and the mm. drugs probably made him say stuff. He was also given... And this is what I don't understand. He, later, he was given a lumbar puncture without anaesthesia before the police attempted a polygraph. Why did they give him a lumbar puncture? I don't know. Do just, they Just for a laugh? Just like stick... I, I don't know. Do they <laughs> anaesthetise people before polygraphs? I don't know. He said that this character, George, his second personality, his surname was Merman. 
and the, the press got hold of this and thought he said murder man. So he was, it was, you know, all uh. the elements were there for a press story. There mm. was the lipstick. There was these various bits of evidence, you know, a, a thumbprint on a door frame mm. and a, a ransom note and the knife and this, that and the other. And he basically confessed. He confessed again, but probably because his defence were telling him, if you confess now, they'll only charge you for one of the murders rather than all three. Mm. They didn't. He got basically life, oh. full life sentence. And more or less immediately after that, he, he basically went, I, I just confessed. I, I didn't do it. Mm. And he probably didn't, but I, I can't say. But he spent the rest of his life in, in prison mm. until he died in, in, in 2012. So he basically was in prison between 1946 and 2012. Oh. But while he was there, he became the first prisoner in Illinois to earn a college degree whilst in prison. He did languages, analytical geometry, data processing and tailoring, but he was forbidden by the authorities to study physics, chemistry or celestial navigation. <laughs> What's he going to do from, from Illinois in, in a prison cell? Oh, build a spaceship. Anyway, so yeah, he was given a lot of responsibility and he was clearly an intelligent chap. Hmm. So that's basically the influence here. And that wow. is my wine and crime True no. crime research. Fantastic. Well, that's uh, that's shed a lot of light on that. I, I, I kind of passed over that detail without even really giving it a second thought, to be honest. Mm, but, uh, same here. Well, I thought I'd check because it seemed like a bit of a strange reference mm. when I was reading it through again. I think I hadn't noticed it before, but then it's like, oh yeah, the lipstick on the mirror. And there's actually, I think throughout this book, there's a few, he's very good at sewing a few little things that mm. you just take for granted as part of, you know, the nature of the slice of life type way people talk, this, that, and the other, the way they act. Mm. Such as, I don't know why I've just put all my pieces of paper out of arm's reach, <laughs> like an idiot. Is uh, references to cough drops throughout. Maya, Maya's taking cough drops. Smith's cough drops. Indeed. There's not masses of illustrations in here, but there is one important series of illustrations in here, which is the police artist's rendering mm. of the suspect who had handed the note to the kid and later assaulted uh, Cotton Hawes when he tries to mm. catch him in the park. We'll actually get to that in a little bit because that's quite interesting how they set that up. So what do we think of the uh, drawing style of the police artist as rendered in this book? Yeah, they're pretty interesting, actually. It's amazingly lopsided face. <laughs> I quite like it. But, um, yeah, I was... Uh, there must be, let me see how many, one, two, three, four, there's about five attempts, isn't there? It's quite a good, um, it's quite a good scene with the uh, the police mm. artist who's getting frustrated because he's got cotton holes and, this, and the child both giving him conflicting information. It's, it's, um, or, yeah, it's one, one bit of police sort of documentation they've not looked at before in the series, so it's it's interesting. To see yeah, it's that, not photo it? fit; it's police. No, art. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's little little line drawings. But yeah, ultimately, there's one feature that's distinctive feature that changes with this, which uh, perhaps I won't uh, mention. But uh, yeah, the uh, the face is definitely uh, similar in my uh, in my mind to that of Evan Hunter, uh, Ed McBain himself. It looks very similar. I think he does. Uh, well, yeah. it's not a million miles away, although yeah. his face is slightly less wiggly around the edges. Um, he's got a very thick neck, the character in this in this illustration. He has indeed. But that's what they say. Say that's the guy. So we've got our situation. They've got to catch someone before they kill someone at eight o'clock that night. We've had the... Assuming they're not a crank. Assuming they're not a crank. We've come to the situation where they know that this person actually exists because a sequence set in the squad room where they're having lunch is very interesting given mm. the supposed military background of all of these these policemen these detectives is they notice light reflecting off binoculars or field glasses and that's how they figure out that they're being watched from the park and they mm. take a chance and say it's probably someone to do with this and I was thinking, oh, it's just really strange that they would notice that even mm. on a bright day. But they have all been, at this stage in the way their characters are told, they've been in the Navy or the Army, yeah. and they've all seen service. And so actually the idea of someone hiding with field glasses and all that sort of stuff, they might be 
sensitive to yeah. it. it might be a thing that they know and understand De- definitely at least a couple of them like fairly fresh from the uh, korean war aren't they so uh, yeah. that'll probably be very much in their mind still but that does lead to them getting hold of these um, field glasses after the incident with uh, cotton whores and the suspect in the park and they have to go around the pawn shops to find see if they can find oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. and it's just this wonderful sequence where they get into the second of the shops and they meet the two brothers that run this <laughs> shop who are totally insane absolutely <laughs> bonkers jason and jacob bloom i'm jason bloom the first said i'm jacob bloom echoed the other and they basically just are mad as a hedgehog and they just keep bursting out laughing it must have been the most frustrating I think he's put this in to try and just think, imagine being these cops mm. on this schedule and you come across these two jokers yeah. who just can't basically say anything simply. Mm. They can't help themselves from laughing and sharing their own joke. <laughs> it's a great sequence and I would like a whole spin-off series featuring Jason and Jacob Bloom annoying people everywhere they go. That would be good. It is very strange. Jacob burst out laughing again, and by the point that you're reading it in the book, you're going, "Oh, stop it! He's running out of time." <laughs> it's not even that funny what they're laughing about no, either. No, when no, they eventually all. tell her, uh, he uh, was tell... eating a lollipop. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they think, yeah, that's hysterical, isn't it? Apparently. Yeah. A man eating a lollipop. <laughs> that's how I imagine they laugh. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, possibly like that. Possibly like a tiny witch. <laughs> but the, actually, what he does do is because he they're they're around and about all around the city trying to find. It populates it with quite a few interesting mm. characters. Absolutely. Uh, not least Lady J Astor, who oh. is a musician or a singer known for her ribald satirical songs. Oh, indeed. That they who is because she's called the Lady or Lady J, they go and see if she is the lady, the intended victim. Mm. And so Cotton Hawes turns up to see her, and in a remarkable turn of events, doesn't sleep with her, even though she asks him to. Mm. So you can tell that, you know, he's changing as a character. He's changing as a character. <laughs> but she does go on about these songs that she's doing. Yeah, she's a bit... What was the line you, you found for her, Steve-O? Well, she's got a good uh, description. Her teeth revealed by her smile were rather large, giving her the appearance of a benevolent horse. <laughs> <laughs> so and po- it, possibly and he, not to Cotton Hall's taste. Maybe not. You go on to find out that the album that she's released is called Aster's Pet Horse. <laughs> so it's all rather peculiar, really. It really uh, is, yeah. Uh, but she's got a few cranks who were uh, uh, offended by offended her. her. So she she's a pos- definite possibility. Indeed, her material is rather risque. Um, and again, she's another one who who slows the investigation down because he's trying to work out what's going on. Perhaps put a, a police protection, you know, sort out a guard for her. And, and she's, she's just like, a bit bored in the afternoon. Yeah, she's bored. Her. Do you want to listen to me record? I've just made this record of cowboy songs, but about the city. Ah, the satirical edge creeping mm. into stuff. So she makes him sit down and listen to a load of these cowboy songs, which is just insane. Yeah. So it does. Uh, it does home on the re- or she does home on the range Indeed. with. I'm gonna. Shall we sing it? Oh, I'm gonna sing it. Go for it. Home, home in the slums, full of pushers and junkies and bums, where seldom is heard mating call of the bird. And the zip guns play music like drums. <laughs> there we go. Lucky that's out of copyright. Except it, it, for, from the way it's written, I think the record is probably about as impressive as that sounded. Yeah. <laughs> if someone could uh, remix that and put a donk on it, I believe the kids are saying these <laughs> oh, days. Yeah. Oh, yeah, these days. So that's probably what she would be doing if it put was a set what now. On it? A, put donk. A, a donk. Put a donk on it's, it. Definitely a phrase that is at least 15 years out of date. (laughs) So in my mind, seems very current. Yeah. Well, now that I'm no longer a teacher with a load of teenagers to embarrass by saying things like that, I just say it out loud and sound like a a mad old crank. So, anyway, she's a good character in there as well. The guy who who buys the binoculars is quite... uh... Uh, amusing, taking his mum to the theatre. Oh no, that's isn't not it? the binoculars guy. That's the guy who buys the paper from the shop, isn't it? So they're trying to trace the person 
who bought the... Oh, is that the paper ah, guy? What's yeah, the binocular yeah. guy? The binocular guy is a bit peculiar binocular guy. Is this binocular guy the one who... He's like on the boat ride, I think, with yes. a girl, and he loses them. Oh, the binoculars right, yeah. in a particular pub called Indeed. The Pub. Which actually leads them closer than they realise to where they need to be. Yeah. But they put a tail on him, and the person they put on the tail of this guy is um, Detective Bob O'Brien. Oh, yeah. He basically gets a couple of little moments where he rings up and is like, am I still following this guy around? And they're like, yes. Oh, poor old Bob. Poor old Bob. He has it tough. He does. At least he doesn't get assaulted or shot in this one. Once. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, lots of strange things. But, yeah, the guy who, who, who bought the paper from the bookshop. Oh, yeah. It's all this, you know, the amount of... This is the only thing that I found curious is in the time that they've got the things that they do, mm. I don't know in reality that that could ever have worked. Mm. But, you know, it's fiction. And it does, it's very compelling and it drives you I along. there's quite a few of them doing it, though, isn't there? I, well, so, I, yeah, I do Because Cotton Horse does get to quite a few places. Like, he has to go and visit Fats Donner in a steam room at the start of it. That's true. And then within 20 minutes of that, They've gone to um, uh, Via de Putas to speak to the Indeed, the, the other madams. lady. Yeah, the other lady. There's another good character. The Italian uh, heiress. Yeah. It turns out she's from like Chicago or yeah, somewhere indeed. daft like that. Yeah. Yeah. She's from Scranton, isn't she? Oh, Scranton, yeah. Mm-hmm. Quite interesting, actually, in the, the, the Via de Putas um, with... Um, it, one of the few times you see Steve Carella... Um, his attitude towards uh, sort of the pragmatic side of enforcing the law, because I think Cotton's a bit shocked that he's not just enforcing all of the law to exactly to the word, and you, you kind of see a bit more of him kind of, I don't know, taking a more practical approach, and he has yeah, sympathy yeah. with, with the, the people, like the sex workers, he, he actually understands that that's a thing that's going to happen anyway, so yeah. he'd rather keep people safe and just have that happening safely, um, it, and, just, yeah, and, he do, and he uses that to defuse a situation where the punter is refusing yeah. to pay for the services he's received mm. and rather than put all the mechanism of the law in, into force there which would one would take them off the case they're actually mm. on and two would make the situation in policing that probably harder for them later in, in the rest of their working lives and for the patrolmen there but you're right it's a point where Cotton Horse is shocked by mm. what appears to be Steve Carella's laxity towards mm. the law and he sort of has a go at him. He does and Carella gives him one of those great lines like, I've never taken any money in my life. And it's like, I know you haven't, Steve, because you're my hero. <laughs> we believe you, Steve. But you leave the uh, prostitutes yeah. to get on with it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's nice. I quite like that sort of... He's not being de- depicted as this absolutely to-the-letter kind of like yeah. shining white knight but you know he's, he's still a really good cop he just like has a realistic attitude to how yeah, these things can be he's handled he's pragmatic he's, about these things and also understands like the you know it's not just criminals and crime they're human beings and acts accordingly which is great yeah absolutely and it's it's a place that they visit quite a lot during the, the 87th precinct stories the Via de Putas mm. And it's another place where you see the social changes of the city take place because yeah, it definitely. starts out very much sort of Puerto Rican and things like that. And it changes over the years to be show different ethnic groups mm. moving, which reflects the real New York, which yep. is sort of fictionalising here. Well, so sure it's an interesting, men- very interesting place. It's not just it. a place for to stick a load of comedy madams and prostitutes. Mm. Definitely, and yeah. Like it is actually generally, I mean, although that there are comic moments and uh, and also kind of fairly serious and shocking moments that occur there. It, he's, he's pretty sympathetic and, and in the way he always depicts characters in those situations as well, I think, uh, McBain, which, you know, speaks highly of him because there are definitely crime writers who would just totally exploit that kind of setting for... Um, yeah, sensationalism or... Yeah, or, absolutely, or, you know. yeah. Just turn it into some kind of, like bawdy nonsense which Ed McBain mercifully is, is somewhat above yeah mm. it's, it actually gives most of the little dirty sex <laughs> games to to the cops yeah. or certainly to, to Cotton Hall indeed that's what he's there for or, isn't so it? far anyway 
but yeah, there's there's lots of stuff going on in this is this short period of time, and it goes very fast. I don't genuinely don't know whether they could do all the lab reporting and mm. analysis that they say they do no, in nineteen fifty seven in that time. But you know, I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't analysing fingerprints on or paper watermarks yeah, in nineteen fifty eight. I I I I think you know your skepticism is probably well founded, but it does the, the the book kind of carries you along in a little rush. I don't think you really worry about it too much while while it's happening. No, it's just um, obviously everyone working on the case knows it's everything's time critical. So maybe they just really kind of pulled something unusual out of the hat for this particular day. I yeah, don't know. which is why the stumbling blocks are so sort of. Intriguingly mm. frustrating. I think the biggest stumbling block is the fact that none of the squad have got anything better to do than chase something around that may not actually <laughs> be be genuine. Yeah. I think that's the biggest leap of faith you have to Cause have. You, yeah, because you don't see it seems see fairly other people, un- improbable, does that, that the entire squad... Well, there must be other members of the squad who don't appear here who are working on other things. I, I'm yeah. sure... Well, there's Can't a suggestion think... of shift work in this because yeah, Bert clings on a different shift. Well, he always goes on about the shifts, doesn't he? So they, are they on? There's like six on, on and there's six off, and there's yeah. you know, there's a rot- yeah. yeah, so four of the six uh, are all anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. If you, if you think day, about it too hard, real, you go absolutely mad. But yeah, another well, an actual roadblock in their in their progress is like they're getting there, and they're still trying to figure it all out, and suddenly the a late chapter in the book, chapter twelve. Everything just happens in the station house. So yeah. suddenly the rest of the police business intrudes yeah. in a really dense and, and, and well, violent way because mm. basically a, a bunch of people are brought in who've been arrested doing other things. The kid's mum turns up mm. and she's a, a character. Oh, she is. And that distracts all the... A lot of the detectives. Indeed, the people bleeding all over the place. Oh, it's not nice. In fact, there's some more police brutality in here as well. <laughs> well I think, is it Maya Maya punches someone? Quite out of character for him, really, but um, I think he might do. It's, very, think... it's a very hot day, though, isn't it? It is. So, it, um, I, I, I think. Frayed um, tempers, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, it's. There's lots of people, you know, when try, someone's trying to be a smart ass and so <laughs> some, someone just punches him in the face, sort of thing. <laughs> you know, we've all done it. We haven't done it. It's interesting, and then that sort of that sort of all happens in this really intense burst, and then they come out the other side, and it's like, oh, now what? And then they have a couple of hours left, and the clock keeps ticking, and ticking, and ticking. And in fact, the clock ticks down till the actual moment eight o'clock. Yeah. So. Dot dot dot. Dot dot dot. <laughs> Indeed. Is it Maya who punched I've definitely just found Hawes giving him a, a good couple of digs. Uh, well, it might it might not be Maya Maya. I might have and made that up. And lunged at Hawes, fist swinging wildly. Hawes oh, no, quite... that happens. Yeah, that, that definitely happens. Is it not Willis, maybe? Is that, uh, Willis is in this one quite maybe, a bit, maybe everyone, maybe everyone has a go at him. Yeah, maybe they just have a, you know, just punching people in the face left, right and centre. I will find it now. Pete Burns is in this, uh, features quite a bit for hmm. Pete Burns as well, doesn't he? Yeah, because he's uh, doing he's doing the uh, organising of it. Because he, I like the fact that at the start of the book he contacts Captain Frick, who's mm-hmm. in charge of the patrolman. It just seems like the most ineffective man yeah. in, Indeed, in yeah. all the books he's in. He's just sort of he's slightly daft and not quick enough. Always reminds me of um, Bar- um What's the, 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 the Choir uh, Boys? Yes, and uh, yeah, what's the, his name? The author uh, Joseph Wambo. Joseph Wambo. Joseph Wambeau, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and like in that, there's uh, Commander Moss, mm-hmm. who's this totally incompetent Jobsworth. Yeah. And they're very, very similar characters, I think. It seems to be Cap- a, a. Yeah. Just like this. Yeah. Someone who's risen through the ranks without ever really getting their hands dirty and it's like far removed from the actual business of police work, yeah. Yeah, I've only ever read The Choir Boys once, but I, distinct, I read it after starting to read these, I've and I distinct, ever... distinctly remember it, in reminding, that Commander Moss reminded I've me of... I've only read it once too, but a book that I suspect would definitely um, 
of being the, influenced by these. Um, well, yeah, things. but also certainly worth another read, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I, uh, I also have only read it once, and it is, I remember it being fantastic, yeah, very trem- enjoyable. Tremendous, along with the, the New Centurions and uh, the Blue Knight, I yeah, think. Yeah, very, uh, very, very good. All just, tremendous. Maybe a slightly more, I don't know whether more serious, but certainly uh, perhaps more graphic than the 87th. But so, still include the certain absurdity hmm. of what what one can get up to in in a in definitely. a shift in in these if, if anything like definitely there's there's got to be an influence there but more about police than about crime if anything yeah the crime's sort of incidental to the stories about the policemen yeah you're not really interested in what they're investigating because you? hmm. you're kind of more interested in what the hell these lunatics who were the policemen <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's yeah. It's a gr- anyway. That would, they d- are, I digress. But, uh, <laughs> they digress, but they are, but, it's, it's yeah, a worthwhile certain, digression. And if yeah. you want to digress from Ed McBain to Joseph Wamba, that's a good way to go. It, it makes sense. I've found what I was looking for. Yeah. Willis brings in someone and he he hands him over to Maya Maya, and this mm. guy says, "Come on, Maya." Gallagher said, "Be a sp." I was going to say, "Be a sport." Oh yeah. And Maya slapped him across the face. Don't talk to me, big man. Don't use my name, or I'll ram it down your throat. Which is yeah. unlike Maya, because he's normally just there for he's the quips and the asides and the, this, he's, that, he's and the other. pretty easygoing with the kind of uh, Lasonic uh, Jewish humour, isn't he, generally? Um, uh, famed for his patience, as we know. Yes, so that's a, a, a... Him to explode like that and hit someone is a uh, an indication of the stresses that they're under. Indeed, yeah. So there's a couple of, of bits of um, Deus Es Machina, which I think is how you say it. That it's help. A, that you, help them it's get Latin. You can you can pronounce it yeah. however you want. All the Latins are dead, aren't they? Aye, they're not going to complain. Yeah. <laughs> By which we mean ancient Romans, not people in Latin countries. But there are a couple of little things, and one of which is they they take See a, our our <laughs> listeners in Buenos Aires uh... <laughs> turning off in their droves. <laughs> But all the ones in uh, 50 BC in uh, the occupied Gaul are switching on. So, so, yeah, there's a couple of things. The note that is handed in is made up of stuff cut out of newspapers and magazines and things like that. And I I thought I'd have a little look because they Mm. take it apart and they say some of it's from the New York Times. So, Mm. again, New York actually exists and you can get the newspaper from there in this city. Uh, but one, the the number eight in the I Will Kill the Lady Tonight at Eight is taken from a Ballantine beer logo. Yeah. And I was trying mm. to work out what it was and I found a picture of it. And it's actually a series of three rings that has been sliced. Mm. So I don't know if you've seen those Ballantine beer uh, there, boys. Yeah, I'll put yeah, that yeah. on the, I have before, actually. I'll yeah. put that on the, on the blog and on That's Twitter. the one clue they kind of miss, isn't it, really? Because that becomes critical. Because that makes... Yeah, yeah, they, they only really get onto that yeah, after the fact, really. Yeah. That's, that's giving them the hint about the location for the... But one of the things I like, not just in this, but like all the 87 precincts thinking about it, he, he gives as much gusto to the dead ends as he does... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Plot line. So you've absolutely which, no idea which one at the end is going to yeah, actually come out to be the oh, one that they were... Kind of on the right track. It has great just... fun steering you down the dead ends, which which makes it a lot more satisfying as a read because some you, you do read some crime novels and, and you, you know you, full well when you like, yeah. Yeah. Also, I should say for any listeners who are not familiar with the Ballantines uh, logo, it looks a bit like the John Bonham logo from Led Zeppelin Four, just tilted over on its side a bit. Ah, it three intertwined <laughs> circles. Yeah. Or the Olympics, if. If there's only three continents, yeah, yeah, post um, ocean levels rising, Olympics, 1984 Olympics, but yeah, that's that's interesting because obviously they have to reproduce that in the book and stuff like that. They also talk about a book called um, "The Lady Is Snipped" from an advert for a book called "The Lady" by Conrad Richter, who I had never heard of, but wasn't actually an author and quite a famous American one at the time. Wrote well, "The Lady" is apparently. A superb story of the old Southwest by one of America's most distinguished novelists. Superb. Another little bit of my American accent there for <laughs> nice. you. And also there's reference to Smith Brothers Cough Drops, which oh. produce a trigger. That, so they, they talk about Maya Maya having these cough drops over the course of this this book. And then suddenly 
the image on the front of it triggers something, as well as mm. the name Smith, because Smith's used as a pseudonym, as it so often is. But also the cover of the Smith Brothers Cough Drops famously had these two images of the brothers who have these insane beards, <laughs> one that looks like a beard of bees and one that's like a chin strap. <laughs> and so I was pleased to see actual images of that as well. Excellent. So these, these are real-world things in here, too. Hmm. So... I think we need to be doing some sort of summing up, really, with this. Yes. Unless you have anything particular, gentlemen? Not really. I suppose my summing up, um, we will talk in great detail in future podcasts about the deaf man. But I was mentioning to you, Paul, the other day that it seems a bit like a proto-deaf man. It's a little bit of a foreshadowing of those kind of stories, isn't it? Yeah, the the kind of crimes, the crime is only, well, I suppose you can say that about all crime, but I suppose this crime's only existing because one person's choosing to drag the police into it. Yeah, it's like, Uh, and the criminal taunting the police Crimes for crime's sake kind of thing, and... uh, Whilst he's got a bit of a motive, well, he's got a big motive, but he he kind of obviously sees playing around with the police kind of as important as that. And that shares a similar plot device to quite a few of the later books. So so that's like an impression I definitely Mm. had about this. Because he doesn't fully follow up on the idea of it being a psychological issue that someone's had. He doesn't like the lipstick killer. No, it's it's just just like... like... Oh, you find they find the guy at the end, the and game. like they realise why he wanted yeah. to do it, and you don't know whether. Well, is he totally balmy or not? You he, don't he really. Did, never yeah, he doesn't know, really did look into the psychology of it that much. You, yeah. you do get the odd bit of in a monologue where he's kind of um, thinking, "Well, did, did, did I put enough detail in there for them to catch me?" And um, you don't really know why he wants to be caught. Partly. But. Uh, and the other thing I would have to say about it as well, it's kind of bizarrely timeless as well. Some of the others somehow kind of, you know, reading these back kind of in order, you kind of you kind of half forget which one comes where, really. But this, I wouldn't have been surprised if it was another 10, 15 years later, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah, it, uh, it, apart from the, the, the obvious contemporary references that we just... Oh, no, of course, out, but yeah, but in terms, really of the, in terms of the plot, I mean, yeah, 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 you know, it, yeah. it does seem somehow, and it's difficult to put your finger on it, a bit of a, a leap forward from the previous ones, and you can see a lot of the later ones... I don't know, I think, kind of. I think it's quite an important one. This really, yeah. I, I see I think it. it. I think it, it, it seems to be making fairly big strides from book to book yeah. at, at this point. It's like every single time, and as I say, rather than just resting with laurels, it's like, oh, what can I do this time? Uh, and like every time, it's something that you're not expecting, and something that's really like exciting, as you say. That that you could drop that in any time in the next 20 years yeah. with a couple of minor And it wouldn't changes. be out of place, would yeah. it? No, yeah. and in fact, the, the way they have to investigate the nature of that crime, I don't think could have changed for a long time. No. Until you get to a place uh, uh, or a situation where CCTV covers every mm. everything and they just go straight to the, the digital. Actually, this probably this sort of crime and the way it's mm. set up wouldn't change at all. So no. maybe that's part of it. So yeah, yeah, that that'd be my. my I think there's there's a certain element of being on the cusp in terms of the eight seventh precinct stories at this point because I think after this book, the publishing arrangements change, mm. to some extent. Um, I'll talk about that more when we talk about the next book, which is Killer's Wedge this time. Yes. But I think you know, at this stage, early in the series, we've had two lots of three books. Now we're on. Uh, you know the next what number step, is this? Seven. This is number seven. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we're moving forward. So we need to have a, a scoring moment. <laughs> so can you run? I'll do the run through. I'll do the rundown. Six to date. Cop hater got eighty six. The mugger got seventy six. The pusher got seventy five. The con man eighty three. Killer's choice seventy one. Killer's payoff eighty. This is Police Shields, the official measurement unit of <laughs> Hark, the 87th Precinct podcast. Oh, I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> I ran out of breath while I was saying the word podcast and it went all strange. <laughs> I'll go first this time then. It is up the top end of these things because it's not a new style, but a, a, a good development in the style. Mm-hmm. So I'm going for a nominal 82 Police Shields out of 100. Um, Steve-O. 
Well, yeah. Well, I think I agree. I, I think this is a a really, really good one. And I remember really enjoying this the first time round. Got a lot of the hallmarks, what you enjoy, the pictures, the... Uh, not the pit, I, like, I like the pictures. <laughs> 100. You like colouring uh, them in? No, but it, 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 it's got a lot of devices here that I think you will we'll comment on and perhaps refer back to mm. this in the future. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go with it. I, th- I think it's almost a 9 out of 10, this. So I'm mm. going to go 88. 88. I think, I think it's possibly my favourite to date, actually, yeah. Excellent. Uh, Mr Morgan Brown? I do really love the novel as well. I think um, that the it's it's a bold kind of structure. I, I like the countdown. I, I think that's fantastic. It really like just winds you up as you're reading it. You just get mm. more and more fraught as it goes along. And I understand your concerns about the plausibility of everything being huh. done in that time. So you know that might knock a couple of points off. But I, I, I'm aware that of what we scored the previous novel at, and I'm also aware that. Killer's Wedge is coming up. And yeah, yeah. I'm going to give it a solid 80. Ooh, solid 80. Okay, so I'm going to fire up Kenneth. Um, Kenneth is our computer. It calculates every number nearly every time, honestly. We've got him for a short period now because this weekend he's going to be pressed into service calculating the scores for the Great North Beer Run. <laughs> Macclesfield to uh, Liverpool. Macclesfield to Liverpool. That's By the Cheshire it's like, line. It's like Route 66. So... He is spitting out the number 83. So 83 police shields this book has been awarded. So Ooh. that takes it up into the top bracket of the ones we've scored so far. Excellent. Yeah. And I, I, so the way I'm viewing this is uh, I think certain books will be able to be scored 100 because you're relative to the 87th precinct, not all fiction. Mm. Is uh, okay. how I am scoring it. I, well, yeah, like, we should be giving... hundred should be the pinnacle of the, the, the series rather yeah. than the pinnacle of all literature. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a whole... which, which you know, it, it, it's going to be near the top of. I mean, it would be nice if we finished this podcast series having organised all books <laughs> into a an ordered ranking that. system. Well, we've got plenty of time, so <laughs> yeah, that's it. As long as Sound... you're not a mean SoundCloud doesn't go under and we can't host them, we'll be all right. Anyway, that I was... I can hear you. Oh, he's back again. <laughs> I can hear you running. He was quiet during it, but I here he is again. He's very happy. He's very happy. It's nice. So, that was Lady Killer. We will be back with, for definite, Killer's Wedge in the next podcast. So, listen out for the bonus episode. There's some bits in that. And until then, I will have goodbyes from Morgan... Goodbye. From Stephen. Goodbye. And from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.